up a chair and thanks for joining me. Um, I have been looking into, um, you know, the programming, how we get programmed to do these things. And I'd like to talk to you, and what I'm going to be doing is sharing a clip, because what I'd like you to do is listen with your own ears. And there's just a lot of programming that goes on in these fireside chats that F FDR was doing. So what are fireside chats? Well, the fireside chats were a series of evening radio addresses given by Franklin D. Roosevelt, the 32nd President of the United States, and those chats went on between 1933 and 1944. Roosevelt spoke with familiarity to millions. Yes, did he ever. And keep in mind, when you listen to the clip afterwards, um, the chat, I'll be playing the fireside chat, has to do with when they announced the war with Japan. And that particular chat is interesting because keep in mind that was in the early 40s. And up until that point, all U.S. citizens had been declared enemies of the state. And the same person, FDR, also put in that Rebuild America plan, right? I've been talking about that, and I'll be getting back with more about how the Russians built Russia with the Gulag. So the U.S., this part of the game show, was, I believe, built under FDR under all of these um, new deals, right? And the workers basically kind of got, pretty much got stiff, right? Um, so a lot of a lot of harm came out of FDR, not how it's viewed, which a lot of people view a lot of good came out of FDR. So um, in his first fireside chat, FDR explained in a straightforward in straightforward language the way the banking system worked and set out his reasons for shutting down the banks. And that was in 1933. You know, same year. In, 33, that was the same year, wasn't that the same year they created the FDIC? Fireside chats are especially popular because the amicable vibe they convey. A successful dynamic will will generate the feeling of sitting by a fire and speaking to a good friend. So he started off in 33 on the banking crisis and then he came up, <clears throat> that was in March of 33. And he used this quite effectively. And um, some of the titles were the next one was Outlining the New Deal Program on the Purpose and Foundations of the Recovery Program. And some of these chats, I, I've listened to almost all of them right now. And um, it's just very interesting to tune in to the kind of words that he uses, like my fellow citizens. Um, yeah, and he talks about don't listen to gossip and stuff, right? Well, I don't want to over tell you what I think he's saying. Here's why I'm looking at it. Will they be declaring a third world war to get out of the jam that they're in right now? Well, they're trillions of dollars in debt. You know, <laughs> how do you cover a big lie? Well, with war, right? War, the ultimate sacrifice. And because they are freaks for numbers, I would have to say that if I were to be guessing, and I prefer to do research versus guesswork, but 
I think at this point it's reasonable for me to say what I think. And I think there's a high possibility that they would in fact be declaring World War III, if only for the purpose that they are freaks for numbers, right? And the second and the biggest purpose would be what a way to get yourself out of a big corner, right? The ultimate in chaos and the ultimate in blood sacrifice, right? War. So how many times has the U.S. officially declared war? The official de declarations of war occurred during five separate military conflicts starting in 1812 and most recently in 1942. So ever since all these years, since 1942, and right now we are in um, 2023, there have been a lot of conflicts, right? <laughs> As they call them. And listen to his words too, because he talks about this, this war not being a sacrifice, but a privilege. And I think it's a sacrifice. And also interesting that he talks about it's been 18 months that the U.S. sat out the war. Why exactly 18 months? Well, because they were busy coming up with the nuclear war and the um, Manhattan Project and ways to bomb Japan. Um, and he then he uses interesting things like your government. Okay, so the last time the U.S. officially declared war was with Japan after the 1941 Pearl Harbor attacks. And I will let this clip play for itself, but basically they declared war. Um, let me see here. 1812 against Great Britain. 1846 against Mexico. 1898 against Spain. 1917 World War One against Germany. 1917 World War One Austria Hungary. 1941 World War Two Japan. 1941 World War Two Germany. These were all declarations that they went in front of the Congress, okay? Official, very official, okay? 1941, World War II Japan. 1941, World War II Germany. 1941, World War II Italy. 1942, World War II Bulgaria. 1942, World War II Hungary. Curious, they pick these places, right? 1942, World War II, Romania. So, of all these places, kind of interesting, right? They picked, let me see here. Because remember, these are all picked, right? So, we start off with Great Britain, Mexico, Spain, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Japan, back at Germany again, Italy, Bulgaria, excuse me, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Romania. Interesting list of characters, isn't it? That they specifically chose to go to declare war in Congress against those people. Now we also understand that part of the um, deal that came out of 9/11 was the um, I don't know freedom rights that they could basically do what they want. So, um, 
So yeah, so that was the last time they officially declared war, and I will leave this clip for you to take a listen for yourself. And um, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me uh, because they always have been doing things. If we're to look at their patterns, okay, everything has been about a duality, right? Black and white, good and evil, right? Well, I don't see war if they've only declared war twice. I don't see that as a duality. War would be more like an intent, right, an evil act. Um, and I would see the act of war something they would do more in threes, right, because their love for that pyramid and all things threes. So I see a pretty high, high likability that they would, in fact, declare a World War III based on all the things that I've been saying so far because they've got themselves in a pretty big corner right now, okay? They've got dioxins floating in the majority of the U.S. water systems. The rest of our water systems are already toxied out. Um, they owe money to everybody in the entire world. Um, they're right at the corner of doing this ne next debt ceiling raising. They're trying to struggle. I mean, remember, they're making this up as they go along. So I don't need to get into more reasons because my work has been to share with you all the reasons why I think <laughs> that that's where we're heading. So. Yeah, I, I see a high possibility that that would be the best way that they would use to worm their way out of things, right? Because they only went into war with Japan because they were busy otherwise being the producer of war equipment. Because the whole time the U.S. wasn't in war to begin with during World War II, their role was to manufacture weapons of war to provide for the war, right? So. Really, I mean, come on, if you're so anti-war that you don't enter the war, but yet you're willing to make all the weapons, <laughs> it sounds to me like a little collusion going on. So anyway, so, anyway, so listen for yourself. So goodbye for now and be safe out there. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. My fellow Americans, the sudden criminal attacks perpetrated by the Japanese in the Pacific provide the climax of a decade of international immorality. Powerful and resourceful gangsters have banded together to make war upon the whole human race. Their challenge has now been flung at the United States of America. The Japanese have treacherously violated the long-standing peace between us. Many American soldiers and sailors have been killed by enemy action. American ships have been sunk. American airplanes have been destroyed. The Congress and the people of the United States have accepted that challenge. Together with other free peoples, we are now fighting to maintain our right to live among our world neighbors in freedom, in common decency without fear of assault. I have prepared the full record of our past relations with Japan, and it will be submitted to the Congress. It begins with the visit of Commodore Perry to Japan 88 years ago. It ends with the visit of two Japanese emissaries to the Secretary of State last Sunday an hour after Japanese forces had loosed their bombs and machine guns against our flag, our forces, and our citizens. 
I can say with utmost confidence that no Americans today or a thousand years hence need feel anything but pride in our patience and in our efforts through all the years toward achieving a peace in the Pacific which would be fair and honorable to every nation, large or small. And no honest person today or a thousand years hence will be able to suppress a sense of indignation and horror at the treachery committed by the military dictators of Japan under the very shadow of the flag of peace borne by their special envoys in our midst. The course that Japan has followed for the past 10 years in Asia has paralleled the course of Hitler and Mussolini in Europe and in Africa. Today, it has become far more than a parallel. It is collaboration, actual collaboration, so well calculated that all the continents of the world and all the oceans are now considered by the Axis strategists as one gigantic battlefield. In 1931, 10 years ago, Japan invaded Manchukuo without warning. In 1935, Italy invaded Ethiopia without warning. In 1938, Hitler occupied Austria without warning. In 1939, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia without warning. Later in 39, Hitler invaded Poland without warning. In 1940, Hitler invaded Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, Belgium, and Luxembourg without warning. In 1940, Italy attacked France and later Greece without warning. And this year, in 1941, the Axis powers attacked Yugoslavia and Greece, and they dominated the Balkans without warning. In 1941 also, Hitler invaded Russia without warning. And now, Japan has attacked Malaya and Thailand and the United States without warning. It is all of one pattern. We are now in this war. We're all in it, all the way. Every single man, woman, and child is a partner in the most tremendous undertaking of our American history. We must share together the bad news and the good news, the defeats and the victories the changing fortunes of war. So far, the news has been all bad. We have suffered a serious setback in Hawaii. Our forces in the Philippines, which include the brave people of that commonwealth, are taking punishment, but are defending themselves vigorously. The reports from Guam and Wake and Midway Islands are still confused, but we must be prepared for the announcement that all these three outposts have been seized. The casualty lists of these first few days will undoubtedly be large. I deeply feel the anxiety of all of the families of the men 
in our armed forces and the relatives of people in cities which have been bombed. I can only give them my solemn promise that they will get news just as quickly as possible. This government will put its trust in the stamina of the American people and will give the facts to the public just as soon as two conditions have been fulfilled. First, that the information has been definitely and officially confirmed. And second, that the release of the information at the time it is received will not prove valuable to the enemy directly or indirectly. Most earnestly, I urge my countrymen to reject all rumors. These ugly little hints of complete disaster fly thick and fast in wartime. They have to be examined and appraised. As an example, I can tell you frankly that until further surveys are made, I have not sufficient information to state the exact damage which has been done to our naval vessels at Pearl Harbor. Admittedly, the damage is serious, but no one can say how serious until we know how much of this damage can be repaired and how quickly the necessary repairs can be made. I cite as another example a statement made on Sunday night that a Japanese carrier had been located and sunk off the canal zone. And when you hear statements that are attributed to what they call an authoritative source, you can be reasonably sure from now on that under these war circumstances, the authoritative source is not any person in authority. Many rumors and reports which we now hear originate, of course, with enemy sources. For instance, today the Japanese are claiming that as a result of their one action against Hawaii, they have gained naval supremacy in the Pacific. This is an old trick of propaganda which has been used innumerable times by the Nazis. The purposes of such fantastic claims are, of course, to spread fear and confusion among us and to goad us into revealing military information which our enemies are desperately anxious to obtain. Our government will not be caught in this obvious trap, and neither will the people of the United States. It must be remembered by each and every one of us that our free and rapid communication these days must be greatly restricted in wartime. It is not possible to receive full and speedy and accurate reports from distant areas of combat. This is particularly true when naval operations are concerned. For in these days of the marvels of the radio, it's often impossible for the commanders of various units to report their activities by radio at all, for the very simple reason that this information would become available to the enemy and would disclose their position and their plan of defense or attack.
Of necessity, there will be delays in officially confirming or denying reports of operations, but we will not hide facts from the country if we know the facts and if the enemy will not be aided by their disclosure. To all newspapers and radio stations, all those who reach the eyes and ears of the American people, I say this, you have a most grave responsibility to the nation now and for the duration of this war. If you feel that your government is not disclosing enough of the truth, you have every right to say so. But in the absence of all the facts as revealed by official sources, you have no right in the ethics of patriotism deal out unconfirmed reports in such a way as to make people believe that they are gospel truth. Every citizen in every walk of life shares this same responsibility. The lives of our soldiers and sailors, the whole future of this nation, depend upon the manner in which each and every one of us fulfills his obligation to our country. Now a word about the recent past and the future. A year and a half has elapsed since the fall of France, when the whole world first realized the mechanized might which the Axis nations had been building up for so many years. America has used that year and a half to great advantage, knowing that the attack might reach us in all too short a time, we immediately began greatly to increase our industrial strength and our capacity to meet the demands of modern warfare. Precious months were gained by sending vast quantities of our war material to the nations of the world still able to resist Axis aggression. Our policy rested on the fundamental truth that the defense of any country resisting Hitler or Japan was in the long run the defense of our own country. That policy has been justified. It has given us time, invaluable time, to build our American assembly lines of production. Assembly lines are now in operation. Others are being rushed to completion. A steady stream of tanks and planes of guns and ships and shells and equipment. That is what these 18 months have given us. But it is all only a beginning of what still has to be done. We must be set to face a long war against crafty and powerful bandits. The attack at Pearl Harbor can be repeated at any one of many points. Points in both oceans and along both our coastlines and against all the rest of the hemisphere. It will not only be a long war, it will be a hard war. That is the basis on which we now lay all our plans. That is the yardstick by which we measure what we shall need and demand. Money, materials, doubled and quadrupled production, ever increasing. The production must be not only for our own army and navy and air forces, it must reinforce the other armies and navies and air forces 
fighting the Nazis and the war lords of Japan throughout the Americas and throughout the world. I have been working today on the subject of production. Your government has decided on two broad policies. The first is to speed up all existing production by working on a seven-day-week basis in every war industry, including the production of essential raw materials. The second policy, now being put into form, is to rush additions to the capacity of production by building more new plants, by adding to old plants, and by using the many smaller plants for war needs. Over the hard road of the past months, we have at times met obstacles and difficulties, divisions and disputes, indifference and callousness. That is now all past, and I am sure forgotten. The fact is that the country now has an organization in Washington built around men and women who are recognized experts in their own fields. I think the country knows that the people who are actually responsible in each and every one of these many fields are pulling together with a teamwork that has never before been excelled. On the road ahead, there lies hard work, grueling work, day and night, every hour and every minute. I was about to add that ahead there lies sacrifice for all of us. But it is not correct to use that word. The United States does not consider it a sacrifice to do all one can to give one's best to our nation when the nation is fighting for its existence and its future life. It is not a sacrifice for any man, old or young, to be in the Army or the Navy of the United States. Rather, is it a privilege. It is not a sacrifice for the industrialist or the wage earner, the farmer or the shopkeeper, the train man or the doctor, to pay more taxes, to buy more bonds, to forego extra profits, to work longer or harder, at the task for which he is best fitted. Rather, is it a privilege. It is not a sacrifice to do without many things to which we are accustomed if the national defense calls for doing without it. A review this morning leads me to the conclusion that at present we shall not have to curtail the normal use of articles of food. There is enough food today for all of us, and enough left over to send to those who are fighting on the same side with us. But there will be a clear and definite shortage of metals for many kinds of civilian use, for the very good reason that in our increased program, we shall need for war purposes more than half of that portion of the principal metals which during the past year have gone into articles for civilian use. Yes, we shall have to give up many things entirely. And I am sure that the people in every part of the nation are prepared in their individual living to win this war. I am sure that they will cheerfully help to pay 
a large part of its financial cost while it goes on. I am sure they will cheerfully give up those material things that they are asked to give up. And I am sure that they will retain all those great spiritual things without which we cannot win through. I repeat that the United States can accept no result save victory, final, complete. Not only must the shame of Japanese treachery be wiped out, but the sources of international brutality, wherever they exist, must be absolutely and finally broken. In my message to the Congress yesterday, I said that we will make very certain that this form of treachery shall never endanger us again. In order to achieve that certainty, we must begin the great task that is before us by abandoning once and for all the illusion that we can ever again isolate ourselves from the rest of humanity. In these past few years, and most violently, in the past three days, we have learned a terrible lesson. It is our obligation to our dead. It is our sacred obligation to their children and to our children that we must never forget what we have learned. And what we have learned is this. There is no such thing as security for any nation or any individual in a world ruled by the principles of gangsterism. There is no such thing as impregnable defense against powerful aggressors who sneak up in the dark and strike without warning. We have learned that our ocean-girt hemisphere is not immune from severe attack, that we cannot measure our safety in terms of miles on any map anymore. We may acknowledge that our enemies have performed a brilliant feat of deception, perfectly timed and executed with great skill. It was a thoroughly dishonorable deed, but we must face the fact that modern warfare as conducted in the Nazi manner is a dirty business. We don't like it. We didn't want to get in it. But we are in it, and we're going to fight it with everything we've got. I do not think any American has any doubt of our ability to administer proper punishment to the perpetrators of these crimes. Your government knows that for weeks Germany has been telling Japan that if Japan did not attack the United States, Japan would not share in dividing the spoils with Germany when peace came. She was promised by Germany that if she came in, she would receive the complete and perpetual control of the whole of the Pacific area. And that means not only the Far East, but also all of the islands in the Pacific and also a stranglehold on the west coast of North and Central and South America. We know also that Germany and Japan are conducting their military and naval operations in accordance with a joint plan. 
That plan considers all peoples and nations which are not helping the Axis powers as common enemies of each and every one of the Axis powers. That is their simple and obvious grand strategy. And that is why the American people must realize that it can be matched only with similar grand strategy. We must realize, for example, the Japanese successes against the United States in the Pacific are helpful to German operations in Libya. That any German success against the Caucasus is inevitably an assistance to Japan in her operations against the Dutch East Indies. That a German attack against Algiers or Morocco opens the way to a German attack against South America and the Canal. On the other side of the picture, we must learn also to know that guerrilla warfare against the Germans in, let us say, Serbia or Norway helps us. That a successful Russian offensive against the Germans helps us and that British successes on land or sea in any part of the world strengthen our hands. Remember always that Germany and Italy, regardless of any formal declaration of war, consider themselves at war with the United States at this moment, just as much as they consider themselves at war with Britain or Russia. And Germany puts all the other republics of the Americas into the same category of enemies. The people of our sister republics of this hemisphere can be honored by that fact. The true goal we seek is far above and beyond the ugly field of battle. When we resort to force as now we must, we are determined that this force shall be directed toward ultimate good as well as against immediate evil. We Americans are not destroyers. We are builders. We are now in the midst of a war, not for conquest, not for vengeance, but for a world in which this nation and all that this nation represents will be safe for our children. We expect to eliminate the danger from Japan, but it would serve us ill if we accomplished that and found that the rest of the world was dominated by Hitler and Mussolini. So we are going to win the war and we are going to win the peace that follows. And in the difficult hours of this day, through dark days that may be yet to come, we will know that the vast majority of the members of the human race are on our side. Many of them are fighting with us. All of them are praying for us. But in representing our cause, 
we represent theirs as well, our hope and their hope for liberty under God. You've heard the President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, the National Anthem. to New York.